Hey, good to see you this evening in spite of uh, just not quite San Diego-like weather, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that, that kind of thing. Every time this, this stuff happens, Teresa starts using my name in vain for moving from San Diego, but uh, <clears throat> we'll, 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 we'll love what God has given us. That, that's great. So, uh, if you'll get your Bibles ready, Revelation uh, chapter 1. This, as as anxious as I sometimes get as far as getting into the body of the book, it is obviously important whatever God has revealed. And these beginning greetings here uh, that are given are really, really significant simply because in these, we learn so much about God, and it gives us the power of endurance when we know Him. And so a lot of, a lot of revelation, not just this beginning part, but a lot of revelation is, uh, is a real study in the theology, in, in theology, which is meaning the study of God Himself and seeing Him and seeing His greatness. So that we will we will be emphasizing that uh, quite a bit. So we'll, I'm going to be open for questions and uh, and maybe uh, something you say. Hey, would you explain that a little bit more? Or expand on that or something? We will do that. Uh, but let me introduce one main thing first, and that is let's take a look at uh, the churches in Asia Minor and a bit of historical background. As you see in the book. In chapter 1 and verse 4, is just read for us, John 2, the seven churches of Asia. So the question always comes up is, well, why did you choose that area? Why did you choose those seven churches? And obviously the seven churches, when we talk about the letters later on, we will know that these seven churches are, are a, a group representation of what any church could be. And, and we will have really wonderful applications in each of these. We mentioned last week that at the end of each letter, uh, Jesus actually says, uh, whoever hears, let him hear what is said to the churches. And so he goes beyond whatever is said to these seven. However, these seven are, are pretty significant because of where they are. They're in the area of Asia Minor. John, verse 9, is imprisoned on the island of Miletus, so that's just right off the Ephesus uh, coast there. And, and there's some things we need to know then about this, this particular uh, area. Uh, first and foremost, the, this area has a very strong pro-Roman uh, uh, stance that they take. Uh, there are, as we read in the book of Acts, a lot of temple worship of the gods and a lot of emperor worship as well. And, and when you realize that, you see that the pressure in that area was going to be extremely strong. Kind of like when we studied Philippians, because Philippians is a Roman city, you, we saw some of that same sort of pressure that was given there. Well, all of Asia Minor really is filled with that. Uh, as a matter of fact, and let me uh, just... Uh, read to you a a historian what he said about the period from 81 AD to 96, which would be the period in which Domitian uh, reigned over the Roman Empire. But listen, listen to what he said. He said, they were governed partly by Asiarchs who oversaw civil and religious life and demanded that the populace participate in emperor worship. No one at that time and place could conduct affairs of everyday existence, even commerce, without recognizing the gods. When Christians refused to participate, the effects were considerable. Persecution may not have been official, but it was widespread at the local level. Social ostracism, slanderous rumors... Uh, and loss of jobs were the natural result. It is likely that the social situation behind this book included both internal pressure from prosperity and secularization, as well as external opposition and persecution. 
In other words, his, his big point is that this isn't necessarily, the persecution isn't necessarily by edict of the Roman Empire. And that, that's, I think, more commonly what I thought and was taught uh, in, in uh, more recent, in, in years past, that when you look at the book of Re- Revelation, you're looking at an emperor down persecution that suddenly hit the empire and took place. And Domitian is usually the one who is blamed for starting that off. Uh, but that is more and more that I've read the his, uh, historians about this. Not necessarily true. Domitian certainly had uh, some effect, obviously, and we'll see a little bit of that. But we already see the social impact on Christianity from the Roman Empire and and of course, stimulated by the Jews, as we studied this morning in Philippians, and Chip pointed out to us, the, the interesting thing is the Jews had run to the Romans and go, they're trying to get us to quit worshiping Caesar. You know, they're trying to get us to quit obeying Caesar, which, of course, the Jews could not have cared less, but they're trying to stoke Ro- the Romans, which the Romans wouldn't have cared at all. You know, as, as, and I mentioned before, the Roman Empire didn't care what you worshipped. You could worship a bug going across the ground. You could say a cow was your grandmother. They didn't care as long as you didn't threaten Rome. <laughs> and of course, that's where this comes along, is it becomes imaginable in the Roman mind that what Christianity is doing is, in, in fact, as was said at Thessalonica, turning the world upside down. The culture is, yes, is going to be changed. And that's where a lot of this pressure comes from. In fact, it was quite apparent uh, at Ephesus. When Paul gets that, what happens at Ephesus? Huge riot. And why is there a huge riot? Well, because... People quit re- worshiping the goddess, uh, the god Artemis, the god, the goddess Artemis. Whoa, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they shout out for two hours and go nutso. And Paul's like, what? <laughs> I didn't tell you to stop worshiping, and I just told you what you're supposed to worship. <laughs> and uh, everything just falls apart. So you, you see, that didn't happen from governmental pressure. That didn't happen because some, uh, somebody gave an edict. This, this is more what, is, what has taken place. In fact, the emperor cult uh, uh, under, under Domitian uh, from 81 to 96 BC, that certainly intensified pressure, but we we're already seeing that throughout the book of Acts coming from the culture itself. To quote again, Frequent banquets held by the guilds, trade associations that controlled the activities of the artisans of the city, were always dedicated to patron gods. To refuse to attend often meant one would be prohibited from working in the city. This led to tremendous pressure on Christians to participate in emperor worship. So you can see it came more from the you, we, we would say the, the workers of the city and the guilds and the unions and whatever you would call them counter uh, that would be similar today. That's where a lot of this pressure is coming from in local areas. It didn't have to come from Nero. It didn't have to come from Domitian or some uh, emperor. And this was pretty much the way it was all the way until Constantine in 313 AD. So for the next couple hundred years, you're going to see emperors, in fact, that they don't, they don't ask you to treat them as a god. Everybody went, they are, but the emperor would go, man, whatever. You know. And then there would be times in which it would be really, really bad. Uh, and the emperor would, would enforce that more. But most of the persecution is coming from the economic level. And we're going to see that in chapter 13. It, there, there will be a very notable point about you can't eat or drink or buy or sell, etc., unless you're part of the beast and uh, identified there as, as the Roman Empire. So there is that idea. Now, just to point out and to relate that to us, in the same way, we, in, in, in at least a limited way, have been seeing 
some of the same kind of persecution today. It isn't taking place from the edict of, uh, of the president necessarily, uh, as, as he says every, every uh, citizen has to do this, but he has greatly, and others in Congress, greatly influenced corporate level and corporations for what they can do or can't do or ought to do, pushing them to do those sorts of things so that the persecution that's been experienced in the last three years in various places hasn't come from government edict as much as it has from a corporate fiat. And, and so you, the, the, these, some of these things are basically unheard of in American history where uh, get a vaccination or lose your job, uh, support Pride Month or lose your job, uh, bake a wedding cake uh, depicting a gay couple or lose your business, etc., etc. But the state of Colorado has gone berserk trying to get that baker. They try, and they've gone through the Supreme Court, got rejected, and they tried again, and they tried again, and they're still trying. It, and so you, you can see, like, there's no state of Colorado law. <laughs> this is them trying to destroy a person because of faith. Anyway, I'm just pointing out, not to get into a political discussion, but I'm pointing out that's, where, that's how this persecution begins. And sometimes we think, oh, well, you know, the government isn't doing it. The government doesn't have to do it. They know full well they don't have to do it. They can push this other area and it'll enforce it simply because I'm going to lose my job, I'm going to lose money, I'm going to lose prosperity, I could lose this or that or that. And that, that is, uh, has, has become somewhat common. So I'm getting us to relate to the importance of us knowing this message because what God's doing here is really trying to help us uh, see this uh, in, in a very clear way so that we are always prepared and every generation is prepared. By the way, one, uh, one of the things that, and we, we've already mentioned this in Acts, persecution was local, not from the emperor, but one of the final things I want you to see here, just an introduction, and then if you have a question or, uh, or something, we can do that. Look at chapter 3 and verse 10. To the letter, uh, to the letter to the uh, to the church at Philadelphia. Uh, in verse nine, he actually says talks about the Jews who he refers to as the synagogue of Satan and the persecution they're doing. And then in verse ten, he says, "Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth." So, verse nine and ten ought to tell you something at about, about the approximate time period in which John is writing this. Anyone want to take a shot at, at what a, an approximate time period or a general idea of when Revelation was written just by those words? Verse 9 talks about Jews persecuting. Verse 10 saying that the time of trial that the hour of trial for the, on the whole world hasn't come yet. Okay, you didn't, you didn't hear me. Okay, no, no I'm, I'm, I, yeah, I, I know, I, 90, 95, etc. Listen again. Jews are persecuting. Present. Yeah. You got a pretty good idea that this is this is being written prior to 70 A.D. There's going to be a lot of other things going to point that out, but first and foremost, you got a synagogue of Satan. He refers to, and they are the persecutors, and the Romans aren't. And we know the Romans become persecutors by 95 A.D. Okay, historically. So I'm just throwing some things out now. What, what then, as we read this, we read it then more as a prep for these Christians. You're, you're doing well, at least most of you are doing well in dealing with the Jewish persecution. But the hour of trial is about, is going to come, that's going to come upon the whole world is getting ready to come. And he tells the Christians of Philadelphia, because you've done so well, I'm, gonna, I'm going to save you from that hour somehow. I'm going to keep you from from how bad that's going to be. So that makes sense? I mean, you, you, when you look at it that way, you go, whoa, you know, there's some, there's some marks there. We'll see more marks as we go on.
But I wanted you to just take a look at that. That's an interesting little statement that the Lord makes in his uh, letter to Philadelphia. So this is, this is a prep. Yeah, wait. Sixties is Nero. Yeah. yeah. It, it just then place the place burned. I mean, yeah. it, and it was blamed on the Jews. And yeah. That's when the big right, blamed on Christians. Yeah, blamed on Christians. Now, now Nero's persecution was limited to the city of Rome. He, he his persecution really didn't go outside of that. But he 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 does start that off. Uh, yeah, you, you're, you're exactly right. Okay, so. With, with that in mind, any, by the end of the one, any, any other questions about the historical background I just gave you? Yeah, Michael. So when people do say archaeological status, which is written maybe like in the 90s, what's the rationale behind that? Yeah, so, yeah. Most and most commentators, it, it, this, is, this has gone back and forth. You'll have a period of years where it's... Uh, for years and years, it was primarily early. The last couple hundred years, uh, I think a hundred years or so, more commentators have said that it's late, 95, 96, things like that. And so there, there are uh, questions, and it all ha- has to do with how people understand some of these, the, these texts. Now, uh, when we get to chapter 17, I'm going to show you something that I think is really uh, tough to refute. But... Uh, it depends on, uh, on the way they look at the book. I have chosen not to weigh you down with the four or five major ways to look at the book of Revelation. I'm not sure how uh, worthy that is. If you want to look that up, you could take a look at Brent's website, and uh, he gives a quick list of the various ways to approach it. Because one of the more common ways, look at the Revelation as a, a history of the world, basically, that goes to the end of time. And that all these things, well, that's uh, two things. That's, that's really tough to do because every generation is going to interpret things by their own history. And secondly, um, what good does that do the first century church? These seven churches, this has to have an impact on them. And he's told them he wants to hear what they, they want to hear. He wants them to hear it and obey it and keep these commands. You know, so there's... There's things here that are going to be uh, for them. Any other question about the historical part of this? Okay, that's quick historical background, but but that's a lot what you what you see. Okay, so look look. Let's take a take some time to look here at the greetings that were read to us in chapter four uh, and the uh, and uh, chapter one verses four through eight here. Uh, so first off, these descriptions are really interesting because. They are quite different. <clears throat> They're quite different than what you would see in, of course, Paul's letters, something like this, because this is this is John telling us what Jesus is uh, is revealing, and so uh, grace to you and peace from Him who is, who was, and who is to come. So give some thought of that. You're reading this. You are. Whenever it is written, doesn't really matter. But whenever it is written, you're hearing John say, "Grace and peace to you from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits, etc." How do you feel about that? What's what's that do for you? And who can't live through whatever is going to come our way when the first words that we hear to prepare us for tribulation is grace and peace from God the Father? Wow. Uh, What a wonderful, comforting thing. I would think I might just carry around a little card and when things get tough and just look at it and go uh, remember grace and peace from the one who is the one who uh, one who was one who is and the one who is to come from the seven spirits and from Jesus grace and peace to you 
what, a, what a terrific way to live your life. So when tribulation and trial today comes, that is very difficult, and whether it's just things that you have to deal with in your life that are challenging and tough, that's, where to, that's a good place to start. Grace and peace uh, from God the Father. Uh, then the words who is, or who, the words who is and who was and who is to come. Now, for, for years, I'm, I'm sure if you've, read, you've read this lots of times before, and it is easy just to pass by that. Go, okay, yeah, that's God. We all, we all know He's the one who is, He's the one who was, and He's the one who is to come. He's eternal, and okay, got that. Not, uh, not something that we want to stop and maybe think a bit about. But there's a number of things here that are extremely important. Uh, first and foremost, God's, God repeats this declaration over and over again. So, when I enter into trial, enter into persecution, and I remember this is the God who is, who was, and who is to come. Later, he's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What I'm looking at at the present moment, whoopee. <laughs> he is the one who was, who is, and who is to come. And he's never going away. He's always going to be there. He may be invisible. You may not be able to see him in the actions of everyday life. In fact, our vision is only earthly. But he was, he is, and he is to come. And it's, it's a great point. Notice, by the way, this, this said concerning the Father in verse 4, as we've just noticed. Also said in verse 8, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And then the book concludes with it in chapter 21 and, uh, and verse 6, where again, uh, the Father says, the, it is said about the Father the same way. Uh, chapter 21 and verse 6, he said to me, it is done, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So again, mentioned here about God. But now here, notice this also. Similar words said about Jesus. In chapter 1 and verse 17, Jesus is the one who actually refers to himself when he says, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. In 22.13, just before Jesus closes uh, the, the book, a similar, similar thing is, is said at the very end. Uh, always difficult to flip back and forth. Here in then page Bibles 21, I mean 22 and verse 13. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Says concerning the Father, says concerning the Son. So you have this very strong statement to people in the first century. This Jesus is God. You know, in the, in the beginning of the fourth century, around Constantine time, that was one of the things the big council got together. The Nicene council got together and argued about whether Jesus was really God. Well, lo and behold, you know, and that's a couple of hundred years later. So this is stated very clearly here, this the connection with that. Now, if you go back to, and uh, even said Alpha Omega concerning the Father, and then Jesus himself, as we have said, uh, I am the first and the last, alive forevermore. So you have this permanence, not only of God the Father, but of Jesus. You have this no origin. He's before all things. He's after all things. He's the first and he's the last, uh, said concerning Jesus. All of this comes out of Isaiah's prophecies. So in Isaiah 44 and verse 6, for example, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Beside me there is no God. So God the Father says this, this about himself when he's arguing that he's the only one that should be worshipped back in Isaiah 44. 
And then also in Isaiah 48, verse 12 and 13, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. My hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my hand, my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. You see God's argument? I'm in control here. I'm absolutely in control here. And I'm battling, and in Isaiah's day, I'm battling against these gods and against the nations who are serving these gods. I'm battling against them, and I'm making an argument to you as to why you need to listen to me and follow me and not those gods and not those idols. There's, there's God's it. And so the same thing is true in the book of Revelation. Here is the argument that he's making to say the eternity of God and the eternal nature of God. He's before all things, and when everything's done, he's going to still be there. Okay? Questions, comments? Very, very, very important principle here. Now, look to this also. This is not just speaking about the eternal nature of God. It's not just saying, see, God's forever. Pay careful attention to these words again. He is the one who is to come. He's not only uh, the one who is and the one who was, he is the one who is to come. And the idea is he is coming in judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation always happen together. Judgment is there in order to save the righteous. If not for judgment on the wicked, there's no salvation for the righteous. And so he's delivering the righteous through judgment. The one who is to come in the book of Revelation is constantly talking. He's constantly talking about that. He keeps saying, I'm coming. I'm coming soon. I'm coming. Over and over again. He says at the beginning of the book, he says at the end of the book. You see it in chapter 1, verse 7, when he says, Behold, he comes with the clouds. You see it again in chapter 22 and verse 12 when Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And so bookending this is his coming, and he's coming in judgment and in salvation. Two passages mark this at the time of a judgment scene. Chapter 11, verse 17. Take a look. Chapter 11, verse 17. Here is where uh, he sees the 24 elders sitting on the throne. Chapter 11, by the way, is a judgment scene. This judgment scene is uh, evident as the beginning of the chapter starts with the present holy people. In other words, judgment on the physical nation of Israel as was prophesied in Daniel. And he says, We give thanks to you, O Lord God, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Know something different about the beginning? The beginning of it was who is, who was, and who is to come. Now he says, who is and who was. Look at chapter 16 and verse 5. And this is speaking of the final pouring out of the bowls of wrath. Chapter 16, verse 5. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, just, uh, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. There's no who is to come. Now, that doesn't mean he's not forever. It means I'm done. I don't need to come in judgment and salvation anymore because now I've accomplished it. I've accomplished what I said I would do in Daniel as far as the holy people are concerned, the Jews, and I've accomplished it now concerning the enemies of the beasts who were against me, and I've accomplished it with them. So suddenly he doesn't say who is to come anymore. It's an interesting uh, blank there, if you will, because he's indicating having accomplished that. And that's, that's the idea in that. So he's linking then the Father and the Son in this significant message that neither God nor Christ are going to be defeated, and there is going to be uh, this, this, this win that he's going to have. Now, very quickly, just notice again, back in chapter 1, these, uh, these quick little uh, statements. Verse 5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. In contrast to cowardly witnesses later on. 
um, when he speaks uh, to uh, to one of the churches. Uh, I'd have to double check that. But anyway, he speaks to one of the churches. He speaks of Antipas, who was murdered uh, uh, because of the cause of Christ, and he refers to him as Antipas, the faithful witness. At the end of the book, in chapter 21, verse 8, he talks about the cowardly who are afraid to stand up for the Lord. And then they are cast in the lake of fire. So Jesus is the faithful witness. Others who will follow him will be faithful witnesses. And Jesus is in contrast then to those who have not. And then the firstborn from the dead, indicating he is the first of many who were going to raise from the dead. <clears throat> he's the beginning of that. And then, thirdly, he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Remember, the dragon, Satan, believes he rules the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus is the true ruler now that he's conquered Satan, raised from the dead. He is going to be the true ruler of the kings of the earth. And in Psalm 2, the kings of the earth are warned. You either kiss the sun or die. And that's the way it's, that's the way it's going to be. That's... That's how that has to happen. And then uh, notice here in chapter 5 and just the last part of verse, uh, chapter 1, last part of verse 5, when he says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. Okay, now he talks about making us a kingdom. This is imagery that comes out of Daniel 7. Let's just pause a moment. Flip your Bibles back to Daniel 7. We looked at this on, on Wednesday night back last year, but uh, that's been a while. It's easy to forget. But look at Daniel 7 when he gives the explanation of these beasts beginning in verse 23. Daniel 7, 23. So thus he said, Daniel 7, 23, thus he said, uh, uh, as for the fourth beast, okay, remember the fourth beast? First was Babylon, second was Persia, third was Greece, fourth was Rome, looking forward. And so as for that fourth beast, there should be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, Another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and he shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. We're going to read a lot about that in Revelation 17, by the way. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve him and obey him. So notice the giving of the kingdom to the saints. Not only does Christ take a kingdom ascend to the throne and take a kingdom, but then he now, the saints also take control of the kingdom after the fourth beast is put down. Hold your place, look at chapter 7 of Daniel, look at verse 13 and 14. Uh, verse 13 and 14, I saw in the night's visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Okay, and then at the end of chapter 7, we just saw the kingdom then is given to the saints. So you see those parallels. Now, in Revelation 1, what did he say? He has made us a kingdom, priest to God and to his God and Father. In Daniel... The kingdom is given to the saints after the fourth beast is taken out. At least that's the way it sounds. But in Revelation, he already has made us a kingdom and priest so that we do our royal work as a priestly kingdom. 
We do that royal work during tribulation, leading up to when we completely possess the kingdom and all the kingdoms of the earth then are destroyed. Everybody see that? So most importantly here, we may seem somewhat powerless or feel somewhat powerless, but as he's telling these brethren and us, we have been granted, for this moment, we have been granted royal power in bringing people to under God's dominion as royal priest, a kingdom of priests. Anybody remember when that was said to the people of God in the Old Testament? That they would be a kingdom of priests? They'd be a royal priesthood and he would make them that? Mount Sinai? Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 and 6. He tells them, he tells Israel, that's what I'm going to make of you. The physical nation never accomplished it because of their sin. But he has made that of us. So we are called in the midst of a period of time that may seem powerless to us. But God has empowered us to be his mediators to the world with the gospel and given us royal power. Ephesians 2.6, he has raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places. That's a present tense word. Raised us up and seated us with him. Okay, so there's... A lot of emphasis here on what God is saying, I've empowered you to do. Uh, Net version actually says, I've appointed you to be a kingdom and priest to God your Father. How many times does God give us our identity, who we are, and what he is doing for us? Questions on this particular point? back that up is which is very important in acts 4 when the apostles were threatened to keep their mouth shut about christ they came back peter and john were threatened they came back to the rest of their group and they prayed and they quoted what psalm psalm 2 that's right they quoted psalm 2 how the nations rage and the peoples imagined a vain thing and how they were going to conquer God, and He's not going to set their king over them, and, he, and, and yet Christ was going to be set on the throne, and they would not, that the nations would not prevail, and Christ then would conquer them. And they quote that, and then they turn around and say, because of that, give us boldness to speak. See the kingdom and priest analogy there? You have a kingdom. You can be bold to speak. You do not have to worry. God's going to be there. He is, he is there already, and He is going to be with you. He is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And He's going to take care of that. So 
It's an empowering statement. That's why that is there and why it is so important. Okay, good. Anybody else? Yeah. Um, backing up a little bit, the phrase faithful witness, is that a reference to what David was called in Psalm? Um, trying to think of the Psalm um, as the faithful witness. And so this is, a, this is a, I think, is this not? Yeah, I, he, I know he's referred to something like that in Isaiah 55, but maybe some Psalms too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, the other question. The, other, the bigger question I have is you skipped right over the seven spirits. Who are they? Yeah, <laughs> I did skip right over the seven spirits because I thought we would talk about that a little bit more when we get to the actual letters. But uh, yes, g- good point. Uh, and uh, and we, we will speak speak about that. Do you think, well, then there you go. Do you think that the seven spirits are the churches in Asia or do you think that's a reference to the Holy Spirit? I think that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Yeah. In fact, the parallel is Isaiah chapter 11 when it refers to the spirit, the, the, it refers to seven spirits upon Jesus. And uh, spirit of wisdom, spirit of strength, spirit of, you know, and he goes through those seven spirits. So uh, seven indicating that uh, complete number again and picturing the Holy Spirit. There's a number of Old Testament references. Zechariah does a similar kind of thing. Good. Okay, so uh, this, this last part here, let's, let's talk a little bit about... Um, uh, by the way, uh, before I, I didn't uh, forgot this one final point here. In verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So three very important points uh, uh, melded together there. Uh, what we are made as a kingdom. He says, look, we're partners in tribulation the kingdom. Now, it's a little surprising, see, to say, well, you're in the kingdom, you, you have the kingdom, he's made you a kingdom, but you're in tribulation. Wait a minute, the picture was, if I'm in the kingdom, we conquered, we win. No, the kingdom then is in the process of empow- being empowered. Jesus reigns until all enemies are put under his feet. So as long as the enemies exist, he's reigning. We are part of that, empowered with this royal power to be his priest. And John is saying that's what we do. And we live in this kingdom by patient endurance. We're going to patiently endure. That's the hard part because when tribulation gets bad, it's hard, it's hard not to say, okay, I, I'm done. I, I can't deal with this anymore. It's too hard. No, patient endurance, and Jesus will complement that over and again uh, throughout, throughout this letter. Okay, now, f- final thing we'll, we'll try to look at here. Notice verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Uh, I always read that as, well, there you go. You know, day of judgment, going to come and... Every eye is going to see him, and even those who pierced him. And they're going to go, "Uh uh-oh. All the tribes of the earth are going to wail because of what they did. Okay, it just so happens that this is quoted in other passages. Let's start, though, with just coming with the clouds. Most of you are, I'm sure, aware there are many passages that talk about God coming in the clouds. Uh, Isaiah chapter 19, verse 1. The, ro- the Lord rode into Egypt on a swift cloud. Judgment on Egypt. It was not a final day of judgment, but it's a picture of Him coming in judgment. He rode in on swift cloud. In chapter 24 of Matthew... When Jesus talks about, and after the tribulation of those days, he will, the Son of Man will come with the clouds, etc. Judgment. Do you remember especially Mark 14, 62, when the high priest had Jesus on trial, and he said, Are you the Son of the Blessed or not? And Jesus, of course, had been silent to that point. 
And when he's challenged with that, he says, I am. And after this, you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Yikes! <laughs> hey, high priest, you're going to see it. Mm. Man, can you imagine? What's he talking about? Judgment. Judgment's coming. But each of those are partial judgments. They're not final. Though, it ultimately, he comes with the clouds in a final judgment as well. What did he say to the apostles uh, when he ascended to heaven? The angel said uh, he's going to return in the same way he came. He's going to come back with the clouds. We see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He's going to return with the clouds. So you're, you're seeing that same picture of a final judgment as well. But now here's the real twist. Each of these are in context, these other passages, context of, of partial judgments, but would certainly lead to a final judgment. Zechariah 12 verse 10 reads this way. On him, referring to Jesus, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Okay, who are the people who pierced him? Jews, right? Okay. And they're going to mourn over him. Why are they going to mourn over him? You can go back and read the whole context, but I think this verse pretty well tells you. Why are they mourning? Yeah, they're mourning for what they did. They're mourning in repentance. And certainly, when we get to Acts 2, what do you see? You see thousands of Jews who said to Peter, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. They mourned because they were the ones who pierced him. So instead of reading verse 7 as, some, as strictly the way I always read it was, boy, day of judgment comes and there's going to be <clears throat> a lot of people that are really, really upset that they didn't do what was right because now they're going to be judged. When in actuality, what he's first and foremost saying is that when he comes with the clouds, it's going to cause people to mourn and repent. When would that happen? When he comes in partial judgments. One of the things that sets us up for Revelation again. You're going to see partial judgments. Seven seals are opened. And a fourth of the earth is affected. Out of the seventh seal, seven trumpets blow. And a third of the earth is affected. And then seven bowls are poured out. And all is affected. So there's partial judgments. And in fact, in chapter, I have this up here. Um, did, 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 where did I go here? Now go back. Uh, now, did it have that? Did it have it, have it, have it? Uh, no, I didn't have it there. Okay, so um, in chapter, I guess I didn't put that up. If you look in chapter uh, 9, should be two passages here. Uh, da, 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 da. lost it. Yes, chapter 9, verse 20. Look at chapter 9, verse 20. This is after one of the partial judgments. <clears throat> so, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, uh, nor give up worshiping demons, idols of gold, and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And then you can also see after uh, chapter 16, after the bowl, uh, first bowls are poured out, chapter 16 and verse 9, <clears throat> he says, They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, 
who had power over these plagues, they did not repent and give him glory. So he comes with the clouds in the sense that he does partial judgments and people do not repent. The intention is God's giving them a chance to repent. I was saying it's interesting, and I, this is not a claim that I, that I believe, that I know anything about anything, of course, in the present world and what's going on. But like, what happened in this country when 9-11 hit? Oh, all, kind of, all of a sudden people are going, whoa, we need to sing God Bless America. We need to pray to God. We need to, and there was this kind of revival where people thought of repenting and, and doing something better. And maybe that was a partial judgment. I don't know, obviously. Uh, but things like that tend to wake us up to our vulnerability and our need for God. And so God has always used partial judgments like that. Did, did he do it with Israel? Oh, goodness. Tons of times before the final Babylon uh, you know, overwhelming. So th- that, that is the idea there. Now, uh, I, I would suggest, too, that these are partial uh, judgments. That's where it was. There's are partial judgments that are intended to bring people to repentance. Uh, but then also these are the kinds of, of, of judgments then that would prepare us for that final day. And we need to get ready for that in, in that regard. Um, I thought we might have a little bit of time for the vision of the Son of Man, but we do not. And so we will pick it up there. Michael. I, I think initially it is, but it, it is the same as true, obviously, of the final judgment. I, I personally wonder if when he, you know, the, the, the hard part of it is that he quotes Zechariah, or alludes to it at least, which is talking about a repentance morning instead of a wailing that, oh, we blew it kind of thing. So is... Exactly. Exactly, and I think I had that on the screen and I pe- passed over it. Uh, I did, yeah, right, because uh, I'm uh, not paying uh, good enough attention. Uh, at, at any rate, somewhere it was on there. <laughs> Maybe it was the previous slide. Uh, so uh, anyway, the, the idea, yeah, is, is that every eye is going to see him. That's the difference that is not in Zechariah. So... If you're looking at it from the scope of the Roman, I mean the Revelation letter, as we mentioned before, we're going to see is those first 11 chapters deal primarily with judgments toward Israel and the, their final destruction in chapter 11. We get to chapter 13, he introduces the beast, and now there's the Roman destruction. Exact pattern that you saw in Daniel. Daniel had exact pattern. First, Israel's going to fall, and then those who destroyed Israel, Rome, is going to fall. And so you, you see that, that same kind of thing. Okay? Good. All right. And, you know, maybe he's also referencing the idea that, hey, uh, when that final one comes, yeah, the, all the tribes of the earth are going to wail because of uh, the judgment that now is going to come. And that's, we'll see that same kind of thing in Revelation as well. All right, very good. Uh, uh, glad uh, that we could do that. Uh, I will maybe be preaching the next two Sunday mornings, and we will get into the vision of the Son of Man and a couple of the uh, letters uh, to the churches. And uh, and, and one, we'll have, the next time we do a Sunday night, I want us to talk about the. We'll do a we'll do a thing where we'll talk about the seven letters, because I'd like your observations on. How do we fit into these seven letters? How should we examine ourselves in regard to those seven letters? All right, thank you very much. Uh, If we can help you in any way, please let us know while together we stand and while we sing.